You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. So good to be with you. My name is Brady Goodwin. I have the honor of serving as one of the pastors here at Northway, the joy of opening up God's word with you this morning. Um, We're continuing in our series in the book of Romans. And this morning, we're looking at a crucial text, which is Romans 7, verses 14 through 25. So I invite you to open your Bibles to that uh, passage, Romans 7, the seventh chapter of the book of Romans. We're gonna be looking at verses 14 through 25. And as we begin, I'm gonna read this passage for us. And then we're gonna jump in and talk about what it means and how it applies to us Um, all from the vantage point of God's grace through Jesus Christ. So let me read this text for us, and we will begin. Romans 7, starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the way in which you speak to us through it. And we pray that as we look at this passage this morning, that you would both give us clarity about the true state of our hearts, but also deep hope in what you have done to address our need. We pray that this would be a time where you strengthen us in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and in our love for him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This weekend, my wife had the opportunity to go do a girls' weekend with some of her college roommates, which meant that Friday up until yesterday, I was with my kiddos, three wonderful kids, all um, 
young school-aged children or toddlers, and it's so fun when I get to do that. It's not something that the four of us get to do all together all that often. And as my kids were starting to wind down, getting their baths done on Friday night, one of my sons was in his room and he was building Legos, as young boys are wont to do. And I was helping him laying out, here's what we're going to do the rest of the night, buddy. And I told him, Bubba, stop building just a second. I need to tell you what we're going to do. I need to tell you what we're going to read, how we're going to get ready for bed. We're going to get ready for your basketball game tomorrow. Stop building. The whole time he's looking at me, dad, dad, I'm building, I'm building. Buddy, stop, look, stop building. Look at me. Something rose up in my heart. I felt the anger. I felt the displeasure. I felt the sense of entitlement at my son's disobedience. And it wasn't pretty. Later on, I had to come back and apologize to him and say, Bubba, I'm so sorry. Daddy was angry with you. He shouldn't have been. Daddy needs Jesus' forgiveness. Will you forgive me? And of course, as my son's just always remind me of the overwhelming grace of God. He says, of course I forgive you. This episode, the other instances in your life in the last 24, 48, 72 hours where you've seen the same kind of tendency awaken in your heart raises a really important question that this passage is going to address, which is this. If I have been saved by Jesus, why do I still struggle with sin the way that I do? Surely you have asked this of yourself in moments of discouragement and desperation. Why do I keep doing this? This passage gives us an answer. This passage gives us an answer to that question, but it also shows us the wrong way to go about fixing it. This passage gives us an answer to the question, why do we keep on sinning? It shows us the solution that isn't going to work, but it also shows us the hope that we need. And those are the three things we're going to look at, that there's an answer to this question, why do I keep on sinning the way that I do? There's a solution that we're all prone to that isn't going to work, but there's a hope that we need. So let's look at this text so we can see how these three things show up. Verse 14 starts and says, we know that the law is spiritual. Last week, Jonathan showed us how Paul is helping us to see at this point in Romans chapter 7 what the new relationship Christians are to have with the law actually is. What are we to do with the law? If we're freed from the law, as Romans 7, 1 through 6 affirms, then is the law sin? And Paul says, no. Absolutely not. The law was given to reveal your need and to show the exceeding sinfulness of your sin. And so in many ways, Paul is simply continuing the argument that he has begun in Romans 7, 7 through 13, as we start verse 14. He says, we know that the law is spiritual. But notice what happens. He says, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Verses 7 through 13 are in the past tense, describing Paul's life before he became a Christian. And starting in verse 14, he shifts to the present. And the reason he shifts to the present is to turn the attention upon his own life. This is the way things still are for me. 
I am of the flesh sold under sin. Well, what does that mean, the flesh? We use that language a lot, and especially if you grew up in church or you are familiar with the scriptures, you've come across this term before, but it's not especially clear what it means. And what Paul is referring to is the part of his life, the nature of his own heart that exists apart from reliance on the Holy Spirit. It's who I am in my own strength. And what you need to know about me is that who I am in my own strength is someone for whom sin still has a profound grip on my life. Paul's saying, we know that the law is spiritual. We know where it comes from. It comes from God. It comes from his spirit. It's good. It points us to God, but it also reveals our need. And what I can tell you is that I am of the flesh sold under sin. So the answer to the question, why do we keep on sinning? It's right here in the first statement. We keep on doing this, according to Paul, that yes, I have been transformed through Jesus Christ, but I'm still in the fight. I am still someone who deals and grapples deeply with my own sinfulness. And in fact, the closer I get to Jesus, the more I realize how sinful I truly am. Paul starts off, he gives us an actually a really mature, humble observation. It's very unusual because typically in our lives, we try as much as we can to deny the latent sinfulness of our own hearts. In our culture, we explain it away and we say something's happened to this person that causes them to act the way that they do. But in our own lives, we give a kind of personal defense. Maybe you've had this experience happen. Someone offends you. They've said something or done something that displeased you. And your response, maybe you have a relationship with them where it's not that uncommon to say something if there's some kind of conflict. Your response goes along, something along the lines of this. It really hurt my feelings when you said this, when you did this, when you acted in this way. Now, maybe the person actually has treated you in an unloving or an ungodly manner. But think about how many times you say something like that without consideration of what the motivations of the person actually are. You feel offense you assume the rightness of your response and you say what's in your heart so that the other person would know and change according to your standards. Has that ever happened to you? Everybody should be shaking their head yes. I know I'm not the only one. This is an example of a way that we try to defend ourselves and say, I'm not wrong, you're wrong. And I'm gonna let you know. Paul doesn't do that. He says, I'm of the flesh. I'm sold under sin. I know how bad the problem actually is. And so the answer to the question, why do we keep on sinning, even if we're a believer in Jesus Christ, is this. We're more sinful than we think we are. We're worse off than we really know. Now, hold on. Follow me here. There's good news. But we have to start with this point, because if we don't, we're not going to understand what Paul is trying to explain in the subsequent verses. We have to be able to see 
that whatever our excuses for what our own behavior may represent, there's truth to what Paul is saying. And that truth becomes harder to dismiss as he elaborates upon what he means. So look at verse 15. We see this answer is first presented in verse 14, but now it's elaborated. What does Paul mean? He says, for I do not understand my own actions. It's not that he doesn't get what happened. He's saying, I don't know why I did this and I don't like it. There's a kind of perplexity. There's a disapproval in his self-assessment that says, this isn't okay. I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the very thing that I hate. Think with me about how this might show up in your life. What is it that you do that you hate doing? For some of us, it's the fact that we tend to resort to a kind of anxious outlook on our lives anytime something comes up that threatens our sense of well-being or control or security. We don't want to fixate on the problem. We know that God is trustworthy. We know that we can put our hope in Him. But yet we find ourselves ruminating again and again on this thing. And what you may have learned is that anxiety doesn't diminish the more attention you give to it. It's like putting a log of dry wood on the fire and saying, have at it. You're feeding it and giving it fuel and it only grows and grows and grows. And you find yourself in this place where you just feel overwhelmed. And you say, how did I get here? How did this happen? This isn't okay. Some of us, it might be a struggle with alcohol. Maybe it's not a constant struggle. Maybe it's something that shows up every now and then. And we feel a sense of remorse when we overindulge. But after a while, there's a sense of entitlement that starts to creep in. We look at ourselves. We say, I've had a couple of weeks where things are okay. Yeah, it's fine for me to have a drink. But we haven't thought about where that's going to lead. And we find ourselves in a place where there's a kind of cycle that runs uninterrupted. This is the same kind of thing that happens for those of us in this room who may struggle with something like pornography. There's a resolve that says, this is wrong. This is wicked. This is evil. But in the moment, we do not possess the strength to fight the urge that rises up in our hearts in a time of temptation. Maybe you are in an unhappy marriage. And as much as you want to try to fix things, make them better. All you can do is point to the perceived failures of your spouse. And in your heart of hearts, you say, if only he would change, if only she would change, if only this would be different, my life would be okay. I know for me, what it ends up showing up as most often has to do when I find myself in conflict with my wife. Now, my wife is not a perfect person, but she might as well be. She's godly. She's wise. She's incredibly discerning. She's smarter than me, that's for sure. And she will pick up on things that I don't see. But guess what happens when she makes an observation, which by the way, husbands, your wife should have free reign to give you loving reproof. That's one of God's gifts to you, one of her responsibilities. It's not your responsibility, by the way, it's hers. But she offers something to me and I can't hear it. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not right. And because I have trained for a long time to know how to be able to talk and 
make arguments and provide convincing evidence for why my position is the right one, guess what happens? And that goes on for a little while. And eventually, she knows that something starts to turn and she gives me this smirk that tells me, come on, get there, I know you're going to, and I break. And I just go, why did I do that? Why did I find myself in this place? This elaboration that Paul gives in verse 15 shows us that this is true for us as well, doesn't it? It applies to us. One of the things that this does, and this is actually interesting because it fits in Paul's argument really nicely, is that as we admit that we're worse than we think, as we actually acknowledge the truth, we validate the law's own assessment on our hearts. Look at verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, okay? It's helpful for us to maybe look back a little bit to see what Paul is referring to when he makes this statement. Look at verse 10, or verse 9, excuse me, of chapter 7. Just look back one paragraph earlier and follow along with me. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Okay, look at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What Paul has said to this point is that the law shows us what's really in our hearts. The law shows us what's really there. It helps us to see the deep state of my need and your need before God. And so how could such a thing be sin? Of course it isn't. This is why he says in verse 12, right in between those two places we just read, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, which is why he can say what he says in verse 16. If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. I prove the point. The law shows me the true state of my heart. And what this tells us, it demonstrates that God's word in its entirety, Paul's referring to the law, writing in the New Testament, referencing the old, but we would look at that today on the other side of the cross and we say this entire book is demonstrated to be fundamentally true regarding matters of our hearts. And so if we try to deny the latent sinfulness that exists within us, we end up proving the point all the more. It is not as if, as the pastor Tim Keller has illustrated, that there's some sort of bell curve that our society looks at and says, some people on the very end are really, really good. And they're amazing. They're the people that Paul would fit into this kind of category. They are so godly and saint-like that none of us really fit into this kind of tier. And then some people on the other end are really, really bad. They're wicked, they're evil, they commit atrocities beyond imagination. But most of us in the middle 
we're pretty good. We're doing okay. This is not what the scriptures teach us. The scriptures teach us, if you recall way back to the uh, to Romans 3 chapter or Romans 3 verse 20, no one will be justified by works of the law. No one. There's no bell curve, there's just one flat line that says all of you are in the same place. God's word shows us the truth of this. And this is what Paul says in verse 16. But I'll ask you, we'll talk about this a little bit. What happens, what's actually going on in our hearts then as we start to observe these patterns? Surely you have noticed these tendencies that exist within you to still respond, even as a believer in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ in this room, to still respond in such a way that's characterized by such rebellion and sinfulness. This is what Paul explains in verse 17 through 20. So we've had the answer presented. He elaborates on it in verses 15 and 16, and now he's going to explain what's really going on within us, which is really helpful and important. So let's look at verse 17. He says, so it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, he is not abdicating responsibility for his sin. Okay, you have to see this. We are tempted to do that. We read into this what we want to see in our own lives, and we want to be free of some of the responsibilities for our own behaviors. That's not what he's saying. He is saying, this is who I am. But in a large degree, it represents who I was. Okay, here's what I mean. Verse 18, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Again, we see mention of the term the flesh, that part of our lives that lives apart from reliance on the Holy Spirit, that part of our hearts that's still being sanctified, that's still being made like Jesus, but we're not there yet. It's a way of describing ourselves when we are motivated and driven, not by dependence upon God through faith in Christ, but on our own strength and with our own purposes and with our own sinful and selfish motivations. The next sentence, he says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. There's something different in him that is common to all Christians, and that is the new nature that we receive when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, that God makes our hearts alive. Before we were believers, all you could choose was sin. All you could choose was selfishness. I've had conversations in the last year with folks who are grappling with what seem to be the truly altruistic motivations of other people who don't identify with Christ. And I've had to tell them whatever it looks like on the outside, it's driven by pride and self-rule and selfish motivations. Nobody does anything good if not for themselves apart from Jesus. And so Paul is telling us that something's changed. There's a new nature, there are new abilities, but there is also the old nature that still exists within him. And it's not like these are some two separate things, you know, kind of a Jekyll and Hyde mindset, that's not it. It's one reality, two natures that coalesce into one reality. Me, redeemed, but still in need of putting sin to death. This is what Paul is saying in these verses that 
I don't do the good that I want, what he says in verse 19. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. If I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Before I was a Christian, I wasn't even aware of how deep the threads of the fear of man and people-pleasing and achievement as worth and validation ran in my heart. It's all I knew. It's the language I spoke, what other people thought of me. I tried so hard. I finally got to a point when I was about 14 or 15 where I thought I didn't care what other people thought, but it's just I didn't care so much about their criticisms, but then I started living for their approval. When I became a Christian, God delivered me from the inability to do any different, but those patterns remain. Those tracks were laid down a long time ago. And one of the things that God is doing is saving us and sanctifying us little by little. It isn't as if those things just go away. Your proclivities towards particular kinds of sin expressions, those are likely things that have existed from your earliest days. Now, we tend to ascribe a causative influence on our surroundings, but it's not actually an accurate statement because even if you change the circumstances, you change the relationships, you change the experiences, the engine that drives those things is still there because it's you. The common denominator in all of those struggles is you. When Paul makes such a statement then, when he talks about all of these kinds of inabilities, this tension, this awareness, he's showing us the kind of place we need to strive to be, which is a deeper awareness of our own tendencies, which is actually a significant mark of maturity, as we have said. But if we deny our sin, if we say this isn't what's going on, we actually reveal a strong indication of pride. So Paul is telling us a little bit more about who we are. But here's the cool thing that he will stress and the thing that I will stress to you before we start to move towards the wrong way we can go about addressing this problem. Yes, the answer to the question, why do we still struggle with sin, is that we're worse than we think we are. But for you who are in Jesus Christ, this is not you in the fullest sense. This is part of why he makes such a distinction. It's not I, but sin that dwells within me. It's who I was. It's not who I am today. Now, who I was still shows up. It's still there. But it's not the fullest definition of who I am. Who you are, if you are in Christ, is both at once and being made progressively more like Christ. You're called a saint, but you're being made one. And so when we think about the idea of sanctification, we see this living picture. Paul himself sees this and says, this is who I was, it's not who I am, but nonetheless, the fight remains. And so why do we struggle the way that we do? Because we're more sinful than we know. But notice, there's a wrong way to go about addressing this problem, which is what he addresses in verse 21. Look with me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
This is the principle that he introduces, and we'll kind of build out why, why, why do we get to this place, but the principle is this. We can't fix the problem of our remaining sinfulness ourselves. This is what Paul's acknowledging in verse 25. When I want to do right, I can't do it. Evil lies close at hand. What he means is described further in verses 22 and 23. He says, I delight in the law of God. I love the law of God. I love his words. I love his promises in my inner being, inside, in my heart. I love what God has said, what he has called me to do. But I see something that presents a problem. I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What is this other law? It's the lie that we have to turn inward and rely upon ourselves to fix the problem of sin that remains in our hearts. It's a lie. It's a lie from Satan himself to try to keep you from the knowledge that just as we were not saved by our works, we are also not sanctified by them. We'll talk about what this means in a second, but we have to be able to see that the law that exists in our hearts is the lie that you and I believe that we have to fix the problem of our own brokenness with our stupid broken selves. Have you ever been there? Have you ever struggled with temptation, with sin? And the first thought that comes into your mind is, oh no, how am I gonna fix this? That's the lie at work. And Paul says, that's the law that is keeping him from doing what actually needs to be done. And so how else does this might play out for you? All kinds of situations, right? If we go back to the example I gave you with anger at my sons, something happens, we're confronted by our own sinfulness. And in our assessment of our heart posture or our actions, we agree with the law that these things are wrong. And so whether it's anger at my sons, one of the things that I've noticed that I hate and I want to see changed by God's grace is the fact that I can struggle with unforgiveness and bitterness in ways that I don't even realize that if people wrong me, whether I perceive it to be that way or whether they actually have, if people in my heart of hearts don't do what I want them to do, how wicked is that? In my judgment of them, I find myself looking at them with a kind of sneering. That's wrong. And when I see that, I agree. But what ends up happening is that we try to resist that to which we are enslaved, whether it is a mindset, whether it is a pattern of responses, whether it is a particular subset of desire, but we often end up back where we started, which is focused on ourselves. And the result is that we begin to repeat this ad nauseum. We become frustrated and worn down and we have fallen prey to the lie that even though we were saved by grace, we have to be sanctified by something else. This is, this is the law that Paul is describing. But here's what you and I know. 
Sin is too powerful. Your hearts are too weak. Your flesh is too strong for you to be able to dig yourself out of this hole yourself. It was never meant to be that way. It was never meant to be an exercise of futility where active self-reliance upon active self-reliance somehow makes the problem better. It doesn't, which is why Paul says what he says in verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am. This isn't self-pity. This isn't despair. This isn't hopelessness. It's honest assessment. I'm far worse than anybody knows. And if you saw what was in my heart, you would come to agree what I have known to be true, that there is no hope for me if it's up to me. This plea shows us that we have to have outside help if there's ever going to be real change. And so the answer to why we keep on sinning the way we do is that we're more sinful than we know. The wrong solution is us trying to fix it through self-reliance. This brings us to the hope that we need. And this is what I love about this text. Verse 25, look at what he says. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God. Not my own strength, not the latest cultural assessment of who I am and why I do the things that I do. Which, by the way, there'll be another one in another year. And so if you put your hope there, you need to change and turn away from that. Not it's the other person's fault. They need to change. Not if I can go this long without sinning, things are going to be okay. None of those things are the answer. But he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He doesn't actually say that much else, does he? Do you want to know why? He doesn't have to. Because we have the opportunity then to consider what does this mean? Thanks be to God. Let's think about it through a couple of angles. That you and I would even come to an awareness that this is the depth of our struggle is a gift of God's grace. That he would make you aware of that is a sign of his love. That he would help you to see that before it's too late, there's an opportunity to grow, not in reliance upon yourself, but upon reliance on him. That's something that Paul gives thanks for. And then we see through Jesus Christ, our Lord, this is the only one through whom these things come. For a long time in my life, I struggled to see Jesus as more of, uh, as anything less than an abstraction. I was a seminary student, by the way, when I was struggling with this. So take comfort, DTS guys, Southern folks, Southwestern, wherever you go. Your theological errors can be redeemed. And something happened about 10 or 12 years ago is that I began to really focus my heart on Jesus as a person, as a person who helps. That's who he is. He's someone who intends to come into your life to take the burden off of your shoulders, to put it upon his so that you could actually stand up and walk with him. 
That's what Paul is saying. This is the only way that your life is going to see the change that you so desperately want. You can't rely upon yourself. You must rely upon him. You must see him not as some sort of theological construction, but as the redeemer he is. The person who intends to help you, the person who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. This is why Paul doesn't have to say everything because he says exactly what we need right here. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We must look to him if we are to receive the help that we need with the remaining sinfulness of our hearts. We must look to him. But what does this look like? How do we actually see this played out? What is it? How do we know we're doing it? How do we know we're following him in the ways that are going to just lead us back towards a posture of self-reliance? So I want to talk about three things. This is kind of just the start, but I want us to see some of what we mean here. First is we can't just resist the sin that we see. Okay, here's what I mean. You are aware of things in your heart. You are aware of the problems that exist and you commit yourself to a kind of repentance, but it's a kind of repentance that's only one way. It's turning away from sin, but we fail to remember that repentance involves movement in two directions, turning away from sin, but also turning towards Christ by faith. It is both of those things together. And when we say the sin that we can see, we focus only on the stuff that we're aware of and we neglect what Psalm 19 says, forgive me from hidden faults, Lord. Keep me from presumptuous sins, but help me to understand that there are things that I don't even see. And so we have a kind of resistance towards the stuff that we see, but it's actually most of the time a way of pride still kind of manifesting in our hearts because we go, oh yeah, 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 I got this problem. I'm dealing with that. And we don't have the kind of latent humility that we need to know, and there could be more. There could be things I don't even know, and I need Jesus' help for those things just as much as I need him for the things that I'm aware of. You probably have noticed that this is how sanctification often works in your life. You have an initial understanding of the problem, and then God, in his timing and in his grace, helps you to peek open the door to see that it's much worse than you realized. And so we have to be We have to be mindful of the way that we tend to just focus on the stuff that we see without recognizing that repentance is both a two-part endeavor, but it also involves far more than we may be aware of. Second, we have to commit ourselves to focus our energy and attention upon the one who has come to save us and the one who has come to sanctify us. Jesus intends to do both of those things. He intends to help you see your need for salvation only by his righteousness, but he also intends to help you see your need to trust in him as well for sanctification. The gospel is what saves us. The gospel is what sanctifies us. And if we resist that, we just reveal how deep our blindness runs. And then third, This doesn't deny the role that effort plays, but it's effort from the right foundation and with the right motivations. 
I'm not just going to sit in this chair and say, I'm going to focus on Jesus until my problems go away. Now, I'm going to do that for a long time, but I'm also going to ask the question, what is it that God wants me to do? Discipleship involves all of us, our whole persons, what we think and believe, what we feel and desire, but also what we do. And so I don't want us to forget the fact that there is a kind of energy. Paul reaffirms this in other places, but he always points to the dependence that we have upon the Lord for such efforts to actually be successful. We work and strive in the power of the Spirit, and we pray that he would energize those efforts in order to bring change. And so think about that with me. Where is it that you need to exercise that kind of repentance? Where is it that you need to commit yourselves once again to focusing anew on the person of Jesus Christ, who is your help? And where is it that you need to resolve to to labor, but only by his help and only by his strength? And so what we've seen this morning is that, yes, there's an answer to the question. We're more sinful than we realize. The problem goes deeper than you and I know. But if we try to rely upon ourselves, it's not going to work. We have to turn to Jesus and everything that he offers to receive the help he needs for real change. And so what better way for us to kind of close out this time with taking an opportunity to remember afresh what makes this possible through the Lord's Supper, through celebrating and remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so when you came in, you were handed a small set of elements. And what I wanna ask of you is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ in this room, to participate with us, to remember this meal together. If you would not identify with Christ, maybe you took those elements because you didn't want to seem out of place. Someone handed it to you, but you don't really believe this. Please don't take this. Not only would it not make, it wouldn't symbolize the thing that it symbolizes for us, but what Paul says later on in 1 Corinthians and it's a, there's a sober warning is that the person who takes the bread and eats or takes the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy man, manner actually brings judgment upon himself or herself. And I wouldn't want that for you. But for you who are believers, who are hearing what I'm saying and saying, yes, this is the truth that I need. What I want you to remember is that this meal today is an opportunity for you to reaffirm your need for Christ's grace. It's an opportunity for you to reaffirm your need for Christ's grace. And it is a promise that his grace will be enough for you. When you take those elements, it is a promise that his grace will be enough for you. And so what the scriptures tell us is that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, as he sat with his disciples to share the Passover, he broke bread and he took it and handed it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. So we take and eat the body of Christ.
The text continues and says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and blessed it and said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you. Take and drink in remembrance of me. And so we take and drink the body of the blood of Christ. And for as often as we take the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the promise that just as we have no hope if salvation is up to us, so too is sanctification a work of your grace. We pray that as we take these elements, as we remember and reflect upon your words, that you would strengthen us with faith, not in ourselves, but upon you who raises the dead. We pray that our hearts would be resolved to trust you, to believe in you, to follow you in obedience, but by the spirit, not by the letter, by your help, not by our own strength apart from you. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.